Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question, how can we best protect personal data in the digital world? My guest is Dr. David Norton, Clinical Assistant Professor in Marketing Logistics at Ohio State University. We discuss his study, The Bulletproof Glass Effect, on the effect of privacy notices on consumer confidence, and I learn what makes people trust companies more. So please come have a seat with us and learn to listen with me. study that we're kind of discussing today is the bulletproof glass effect, um, unintended consequences of uh, privacy notices. And so uh, before we, we launch into like discussing that, um, I'd love to know, how did you get interested in your current career path? How did you say, you know what, I want to study marketing? Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Professor David Norton. Yeah, well, that's a you know interesting interesting question. Um, in some ways, uh, I have it, it was sort of a I had no better better options. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I was um, so I guess you know how far back do you want to go? Um, I I grew up in in Texas, mm. so I when I was a in high school, um, I was always a kind of a creative person, um, and so I thought maybe I want to go do advertising, you know. You know, creating new interesting things. And now the, I mean, I guess the sort of interesting thing about that is that um, I really hate it when my students essentially equate marketing to advertising because it, it's so much more. I mean, marketing is so much more uh, beyond advertising. But I was, you know, I can, I can empathize. I was in their shoes. Um, so um, I was looking at schools and, and trying to figure out where to where to go. And um, UT Austin was just down the road. Um, a really uh, highly thought of school, uh, their business school um, was was really uh, well ranked, I think, at the time. Um, and so I just sort of showed up. Um, I, I seemed to do okay on test scores, you know, the the board scores, SAT. If that that's what it, I think it was the SAT back then. Um, they did it on paper and and with pencils. You know, that tells you how how long ago that was. Um, so I did okay, and so you know, maybe mistakenly they let me into the <laughs> to the program there at UT Austin, and um, you know, managed to find my way out of that that program. And um, and so what what really kind of interested me in that program was was uh, the marketing research classes. Mm. Uh, I came out, I graduated my with from my undergrad right after September 11th, and so jobs were pretty scarce. Um, so a lot of people wanted to, to put you in jobs that um, weren't all that palatable. They weren't all that interesting. Uh, the, and so I went and, and the, the classes that I found interesting were the, the data science classes and you know, marketing research. So my, my dad was a statistician. So that ah, probably helped yep. along the way. I like to say that I was kind of a, a, a perfect blend of my, my mom was a psychologist and my dad's a statistician. So I, that's kind of how I, I felt. You were, you were doomed from the start. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, absolutely. You can imagine dinner ta table conversations. You know, well, I mean, some some poorer dinner dinner table conversations. I, I got a D in statistics, the very first stats class I took, and my, <laughs> my dad was was not very happy about oh, that. Oh man. Um. So yeah, so I I got into marketing research and and uh, found it. 
sort of fascinating yeah. to be able to ask people questions. And um, and I worked in the marketing research industry for a little while. I uh, worked at a variety of, of firms and I, I eventually had difficulty in, in having a having a boss. I don't, you know, you may, maybe you can relate. Um, I didn't really like being told what to do all the time. And I also got tired of sort of the tedious nature of doing studies over and over and over again. And so for me, the PhD seemed like a, an avenue for freedom. Mm. So I could sort of think creatively about interesting questions that, that I thought were interesting, rather than, you know, what, how satisfied are you with the, the service at such and such restaurant yes. or bank or whatever. Gotcha. So yeah, so I, I, I went down and started pursuing a PhD at uh, South, Carolina, South Carolina in Columbia. And that's kind of where I started getting interested in um, identity. Mm. So that's kind of my area of expertise, if you will, if I can, if I'm sure. allowed to say I'm an expert yeah. in, in something. Uh, you have yeah. a PhD. I think that counts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. Um, I, I would say that I know some PhDs that, you know, maybe aren't experts. In, I don't know. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe they. Um, I mean, yeah, I, the, there is that. Uh, there, there's the truth, and then there's being polite, right? That's that's fair. That's yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So I started. Um, I started looking into. You know, I'm fascinated by consumers. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I would probably classify myself as a consumer psychologist, mm -hmm. um, and just how how people think and how people behave as as consumers, and, and given different contexts and uh, how they process information. And so most most of the the stuff I work on is about identity and identity formation. Um, I'm fascinated because I it took me a long time to kind of figure out who I was as a as a person. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's kind of you know a lot of and I think if you talk to a lot of academics, um, especially psychologists, they'll say that a lot of their work is autobiographical. They, they like to study things about themselves to try to be introspective and figure out who they are right. as a as a person. So yeah. So and you know, I I study consumers and how they how they express or not express their identity and, and privacy is sort of the one of those non-expressions of your identity or the control of of your own information and identity. And so that's that's kind of how we we got into to thinking about privacy. So tell me a little bit more, uh, and that's a great segue there, about how you connected with um, uh, Dr. John, Dr. Uh, Bruff, and uh, I believe, I'm, I'm going to say her name wrong, Shripa, uh, soon to be Dr. Shripa. Yeah, Shannon, yes. yeah. Um, um, so, so how did, and how did this whole study come to be? Like, wh where did that start? We, so, oddly enough, um, you know, maybe it's not all that odd. It, um, it started as a, as a conversation. So I've known um, Aaron... Um, Aaron was a PhD student at Northwestern University while I was a PhD student at uh, South Carolina. And one of the ways that we could pay for conferences was to volunteer, um, you know, checking people in and registering uh, people at these conferences. And so both Aaron and I were uh, were volunteering at a, at a conference. I can't remember. I think it might have San Francisco or something like that. Uh, but basically to get because we're cheap <laughs> and, and underpaid as as PhD students typically are. Um, and so we got an admission to a conference there. And so that's how I met mm. Aaron. And so we've, you know, we've been um, friends for some time. That was probably a good 15 years ago. Um, and Aaron's a, an amazing researcher. And, you know, I, I have 
the utmost respect for for him. And I, at a conference, maybe a couple of years ago, we were talking about various projects as we do. Uh, you know, what are you interested in? What are you working on? Those kinds of things. And I had mentioned, um, you know, being interested in a, a project that I was working on, but I wasn't making much progress. Mm. And he said, oh, that sounds really similar to this project. This is the Bulletproof Glass project that he had started with Leslie John mm -hmm. uh, some time ago. And they I, had made some progress and, and had several studies done, but they kind of, as a lot of projects, you know, their lifespan, sometimes they wax and wane. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that you get really excited about them and uh, you make a lot of progress. And then sometimes you just run up against either issues that, the, the direction that you think it's going to happen just doesn't take hold um, or, you know, other things take priority, uh, other projects that are maybe more exciting take priority. Um, and, and so we were talking about this and he asked if I'd like to like to join their their, pro their project. So I, I'm kind of the interloper here. I just kind of joined the project late. Um, and I read through the paper and it was it was really interesting. And I, uh, I ran a few studies myself here at Ohio mm -hmm. State in um, you know, kind of jump started it again. I guess you know, we put the little electric paddles on the yes. project, and and it its heart started back up again. Um, and then we, yeah, we started. We we, we all kind of got simultaneously more interested about the project, and um, so then we decided to continue it, and and ultimately finished it. So awesome! And so for our listeners, do you mind just summarizing the project? Because uh, I found it really fascinating. Um, and yeah. I think uh, you, and, uh, I'm glad to hear that you cover the psychology of it because it is one of those fascinating, and I think there is, there's good reason for it, but the fact that when we see more protection, we often actually cause us to worry more. So, yeah. uh, right. And that's, go ahead. that's the, the genesis of really of the title, right? The title is the bulletproof glass effect. And so um, I, I think that probably comes from Aaron the 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 title but it's essentially a very apt analogy that when we you know the whole point of bulletproof glass is that it's supposed to be protected right, right? it's supposed to make us feel more secure um but then when we when we see it we when we encounter it it's a little surprising it's not like we walk around all day um at least not here in in the US uh you know seeing bulletproof glass all the time or or seeing you know gates that are barring uh, parking lots and, and other things. Um, and so when you see that, that, uh, cue, it, it kind of raises our, uh, the salience that there is danger potentially. And so, you know, what wasn't necessarily there beforehand sort of comes to light. Now we start to think about, you know, potential dangers. Um, and now we're consequently feel less safe overall. Mm -hmm. So it's this very ironic kind of, um, Kind of situation where you, you know, see bulletproof glass and now I, I feel less safe because of that right and so essentially yep to, to give you a quick summary of, of our paper our paper is essentially about data privacy and consumers um and so we we talk about privacy policies or i think the term we use is privacy notices so these are you know if a, a firm has a, a privacy notice that says this is the all the ways that we either protect or use your data um in, in many cases, those are now legally required, uh, mandated to, to, to have. Uh, and so essentially, our analogy is, is transferred to, to that um, situation. So we would say the intent behind those 
And I think managers and people who you know uh, design websites uh, and e-commerce sites, the intent there is to to one that maybe they're mandated to to provide provide that those. Is kinds that of, the GDPR uh, or GP? I, I can never remember the exact, uh, but in, in Europe, right, Europe for, forces that. Yes. Yep, Europe's GDPR, and then California has their own. Oh, that's right. Um, and I, at this point, um, there might be all other states that have individual uh, mandates. So, yeah, and so sometimes those things are are mandated, um, but other times, you know, firms in an effort to be maybe transparent, and and we've seen in other research that you know, transparency is usually a good thing. You want to you want to tell people what you're up to, and they usually appreciate those kinds of things. Um, it's so yeah, maybe the intent there is to make consumers feel feel better about their privacy. Um, and sometimes they even do things. But one of the things that we've noticed, and we, and we can chat about sure. that, is that they talk about how how good they are at protecting privacy, mm. right? Their their competence and like using all of these encryptions and you know, these things I I don't understand. But you know the computer scientists who are you know, really good at doing all the, the security measures. And ultimately, what it what happens is that that raises consumers' concerns of uh, of privacy, and and it it may essentially decreases their their trust of the of the firm that that is associated with that. And, and so the consequences there on the, in the downstream is consumers are less likely to uh, contract with the firm. They're less likely to purchase uh, from those kinds of. Firms are less likely to sign up for, you know, mailers or any kind of those outcome variables that we might care about online, um, because of that privacy notice. And now it depends on sort of the way that you frame that privacy notice. But but because of that privacy notice, the, the sort of initial effect is that now I'm starting to think about my privacy, and that gives me a little bit of a pause to sort of think: Is this the right thing to be doing? Yeah. Oh wait, I am sharing this right. So. And it is so yeah. funny. And I think some of it is too just an, an annoyance thing because you normally have to click some kind of uh, affirmation and people do not like clicking. They like scrolling. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this comes from uh, my own experience as a digital marketer. So, you know, people go on a website and uh, everyone sees it now because it's now legally required in a lot of places that accept our cookies, don't accept our cookies. Yes. And, uh, and so the response is often, you know, I don't need to be on here because it... it, it it does give them a new decision uh, moment instead of to just proceed into the site just to like stop. And then also to be like, oh yeah, yeah what are they doing with my privacy? Whereas like, if you had an unethical business, um, we had a client, I don't think they did this out of malintent, but they did ask us, they were like, can you just like take people's email address from here and just put it in my newsletter? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, can't do that. <laughs> you know, I think they just didn't know right. about like the, the laws and stuff like that. But I know that there are people who probably do still do that, right? Like it's hard to catch all that. Oh, yeah. And so, um, which is unethical, which is way worse for people's privacy. But because it's not listed, <laughs> people probably trust them more, which is an odd, an odd thing. Right. Um, so it, there was a really cool paper. Uh, no, sorry, no, I didn't interrupt you there, but there was a really cool paper I was just reading about. It, it's because uh, you mentioned this this idea of like clicking. I feel like it's that when I was growing up, it was that turnstile when you're going on the roller coaster and you're standing in line and you made it through the turnstile to get to the to the roller coaster. I was a little afraid of maybe an anxious child. Um, 
And, and once you got through the turnstile, there was there was almost like no turning back. Like yes. that meant that you were going to actually ride the yes. ride, and you know. You, and so in in that way, it's it's kind of like that, where you're clicking on the the button, and it feels like I have made a choice, and maybe that choice is not reversible. And so maybe that's that that feeling of you know, oh no, what 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 have I yes. done, right? Um, but yeah, anyways, think about that paper about the way that people differentially present those privacy options. And I, I'm gonna butcher this, uh, but I think there were some some folks out of Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. and they were looking at like Android and Apple and, and when they talk about privacy settings, then people are actually, okay, they're actually thinking about privacy and, and making those self-protective kinds of elections. But if, then if you asked, if framed it as like, location settings which is essentially the same thing yes, yeah are you are you allowing people to know where you are at any given moment of time? that's a that's a pretty massive oh yeah invasive sensitive piece of information but if you just called it something like location settings then people are like oh sure what, what difference does it make so it's so like some subtle things that that firms are doing and you know do they know better i don't i don't necessarily know i'm you know uh, these firms that are making these choices, maybe they do, um, but yeah, they do have some really interesting behavioral effects on on people and their willingness to share some pretty sensitive information. Yeah, one thing that I've seen that I actually really appreciate, and you know, is it always followed through on? I don't know. You know, this Amazon thing coming out about Alexa listening even when it's not supposed to be. You know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that there are people who are doing things they're not supposed to, even though they say they're not. Um, but the the request to only I, I saw this option added about a year or two ago, uh, only allow while using the app, because it used to be oh, okay. it used to be allow you either it was on or off, and which yeah. is <laughs> the fact that you like could have an app sitting on your phone and just forget about it and not use it, and they just get all your information, all your location yeah. is crazy. Versus like I mean obviously when I'm on. Google Maps, like <laughs> I want the, to know where I am, right? But I don't want, sure. I don't know that yeah, I yeah. want Google to know where I am all the time. And so that's a totally, um, it's a totally different thing. But that to me seems like a solution where just by providing that other option and they made that the default option, which as I'm sure you know, <laughs> with marketing research, like the default option is actually a very important thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you said you mentioned, and I'd love for you to talk about this. So we have people who are frustrated with data privacy notices, or they see it as, oh, it makes them think about it, makes them distrust the company. Uh, you said there are some ways to mitigate that, though. How how do you mitigate um, that distrustfulness that's created by the privacy notice? Yeah, it, good question. So one thing that we did, um, if I could just back up just sure. a little bit, in, in our study, we wanted to know kind of how pervasive this was. So what we did was uh, we had a, basically like how bad is this, this effect? How, you know, how is it, what's the baseline kind of uh, rate here? And so we looked at, we pulled just 50 random privacy notices from some firms on, uh, I think they were traded on one of the exchanges, so NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, something like that. And we looked through, we did some text analysis of their privacy, their actual privacy notices. And we looked at the, the type of language that they would use in terms of you know, how they're talking about what they're doing with your data and what they're doing to protect it, et cetera. 
And so the baseline is that most people, and this will be important when we, when we talk about how to mitigate this, most people, uh, people, firms, will, will talk about cognitive kinds of uh, aspects of their, of their privacy notice. So they're very, cognitive as a, as a uh, contrast to affective. So cognitive is sort of thoughts, affective is sort of emotions and uh, that kind of, so cognitive, is, and so very thought-driven, very brain-heavy, right? Um, and, and so to answer your, your original question is about how do you mitigate that? You, you have to build trust mm -hmm. with your consumers. And, and the more they trust you, the more likely they're going to contract with your firm and uh, buy things and, uh, and all of those outcomes that we want. But they, they need to trust you. And, and really, it's built on the, the relational kind of trust, mm. like that emotional trust that it's not. It, so there's, there's a couple of components of trust. One is, do I think that you're able to protect my data? Like, do you have the competence? So that's one aspect. And that's what I think that a lot of firms kind of uh, default to. Yes. They want to tell consumers, hey, we've got these encryptions and we've got all this great software and we can put it in, you know, eight levels of, you know, the, the cloud and <laughs> all, all of these things. But and, and consumers are probably thinking, okay, fine. But what I really need to hear from you is I, I need to hear that you're motivated that our relationship means something to you and that you're motivated to protect me. So that it's more about, it's less about the competence aspect and more about like the, what we call benevolence. So yeah. it's, do you actually, do you actually care about me yeah. as a, as a consumer? And so, yeah, the, the, that's a long, long answer to your question, which that was, was a good, um, how answer. do you mitigate yeah. that? And how do you mitigate it is, is essentially to, conveyed, communicate to your consumers that you do, you care about them. And, and so we call them in our paper, we call the benevolence cues. And so it was just as, as small effect as saying, we care about your privacy and here's the privacy notice, right? It's just a little kind of a blurb that says, you know, we're, we're really committed to protecting your privacy. So you're trying to engender this relationship kind of, um, you as opposed to, hey, we're really good at this. Yes. We're, we've got the greatest scientists. Like that doesn't seem to matter. Right. It's about like, we're motivated. Like we like you. And, and so those are the, those are the things that, that tend to matter. Which see in terms of, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to in terms of lessening the, the sort of backfire effect of, the, of those notices. Which seems to really, I think, reflect, uh, at least uh, on a relational level, how humans, you know, what really matters for humans, right? Like, yeah, just because someone's good at their job doesn't mean that they're going to do a good job. You know, someone could be only I, medium at their yeah. job, but if they really care about me, that's going to matter more than, you know, not that necessarily just because these firms use that language, but th there are reasons that that triggers like that, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, we want, we want to be, you know, we have a lot of self-worth and we think we're great uh, inherently. That's a, you know, a psychological sort of truism, but um, <laughs> yeah, we, we want other people to think that we're great too. And, and when we engage in relationships and effectively that's what we're doing when we buy things from mm. online firms is we're, we're either starting or continuing some sort of relationship. We want them to, to care about us. And so we're kind of building that relationship through, through trust. Was there anything particularly that you found particularly surprising about the study? 
Um, yeah, I mean, we we tried um, a variety of different different things. Um, I'm trying to think of probably the most the most interesting things that happened. Well, one thing is when we thought really what's going on is that when people are reading these privacy notices that they're getting scared by the by the language like the language is the we don't i don't know i don't if, if you're like me you see the privacy notice or the terms of in conditions and you skim it and you maybe have read a couple of words <laughs> <laughs> right right um but so maybe that's what we were thinking originally was that people are really just getting geared off by reading through all this. And this is just a bunch of jargon and that legalese and I don't understand it. And I get scared because I, I am not familiar with the things that they're talking about. And so maybe that's the thing that's turning people off. And so we decided to say, well, what if we just what if we don't have them read anything? What if we just sort of indicate that there is a privacy policy? We don't even have to have you read it. But just knowing that there is a privacy policy, period, does that also show up? And, and the answer is yes. I mean, so we, we had people in a couple of different situations, one where there was a privacy policy, like it was pretty clear. There's a link, the little blue link that says click on our privacy policy. And then another group of uh, participants at our surveys didn't see that at all. Mm. And we, you know. And then we had another situation maybe that where, where people actually saw the privacy policy and read the whole thing, et cetera. And so it really only matters um, that that people are aware that there is some sort of policy. It, it, so if we cued them to think about it, right, we yeah. cue them to think about privacy, that's, that's the thing. Interesting. It doesn't matter the content. Um, it's just about, well, it's about that they know there's a policy and, and sort of how they encounter that policy. So if they encounter that policy with the with the expectation that the firm is being benevolent and the reason that they're showing me this policy is because they care about me, then that that mitigates the effect. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me that I uh, uh same podcast that I, I heard about this study, they also covered one where uh companies with cute logos tended to face less backlash when they had a scandal. You know, it's like, oh, it's, interesting. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, uh, I don't know that that actually means that the, the company is more ethical, but it, it does cue yeah. those things in, in our, our head. That's like, uh, <laughs> especially if it was more childish and cuter, like, uh, like, oh, we yeah. should give them another chance. And so such a, it, it the, the way that psychology <laughs> plays out in these large form interactions, um, do you see, are there any inherent weaknesses to that interaction between how uh, we're kind of hardwired and how that's being played out in these big systems? No, yeah, I mean, I, I, I teach a, a variety of marketing classes here at Ohio State. And um, one of the things that I, I tell people is, is marketing's about relationships. Mm. And so really, you all know the answers, right? And we as, as firms and managers and, and people who are, driving business, we know, we know what to do. We, we know the answers. We've been taught these things, you know, since we were, we were really young, you know, it's like, be nice to people, treat people how you want to be treated, you know, listen to them. Th those are, those are just sort of basic fundamental kind of rules about being in a social, you know, group. 
And, um, and your students get bored when you say this. Yeah, they're like, hey, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah. And then they don't do it. And then they're like, why isn't it working? And then they yes. don't do it. Sorry, go ahead. You're, yeah. I just. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I, I do a, a fair amount of consulting with firms and, um, you, and I go in. And, and the old rule or the old um, adage I think about consultants is consultants are people that you pay to uh, look at your watch and tell you what time it is. <laughs> um, I've never heard that. And that's that. essentially true. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, they, they come in, look at your watch, and tell you what time it is. That that's essentially what what I do is is go in and I reteach things that people already know. But sometimes we need that reminder, right? That gentle nudge to say, "Oh, right, yes." Like I shouldn't um, call my customers' names, or you know, I, I should <laughs> I, I should treat them well, right? I shouldn't insult their intelligence. I should all of these things that we know inherently. <laughs> but but yeah, sometimes we just need need a, a reminder for those things. Um, I'm sorry, and I know you can't share because it's a client. But you did you actually have to tell them not to call their customers names? Does that ever actually happen? Uh, no, I think I I think I made I made, made oh, that okay, um, got you. I, but, I I've seen it. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and then you know we have sort of. Uh, specific conditions or contexts where that might actually be better. Ah. So think about like um, Wendy's in the last several years has has gotten a lot of notoriety for their yes, Twitter account yes. being very subversive and, you know, they'll roast people. And so if that's part of your shtick, right. if that's part of your brand and identity, then then those things might work. Because it comes across again, as you authentic. you got to be careful. Yeah, yes, right. but then yeah, you, you do have be to be careful. careful. Yeah, it could definitely backfire. No, I yeah. was thinking, and it's one of those. I was going to say humor. Humor is one of those things that we we talk about a lot, mm. right? We talk about advertising, and you know, oh, we sh we want to have really hilarious ads, and those will get awareness and attention and engagement. But humor is incredibly subjective. Yes, and so what I find funny, a lot of people don't find funny. Um, but. You know, so and so you have to be really careful with with some of those things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's funny because I, I, you know, we talked earlier that you've done some work with reviews, and that's where I, what I yeah. when you said don't call your customers names, and not in the Wendy sense of like roasting. <laughs> I have seen yeah. reviews and been like, well, I'm not going there because I've seen owners, you, normally smaller businesses, responding in harsh ways and very no oh, inappropriate yeah. ways. Um, yeah, I I think that's I, I'm really curious. What have what has been your study of reviews and what has that revealed? Ooh, so reviews I I think are fascinating. It's it's um typically you know the olden days was we got information. We we're consumers and we got information as passive recipients. Right, the firm was in control of the message and the firm told us uh, information and what we what they wanted us to know about, about the, you know, the product or the service or, or whatever. But reviews now has been this great thing, you know, the web that we have interactions with other consumers, right? The C to C kinds of interactions. And now we get reviews from other people who have actually used the product and they don't have a vested interest probably in, you know, selling us the product, mm. but they're just from their, of their own free will telling us about their experiences with the product. And so it lends a lot of credibility to, you know, those kinds of reviews right. and that information transfer, because why would, you know, Joe Sixpack 
say all these wonderful things about, you know, whatever this pogo stick that he bought off of Amazon or, or something. Like he has no motivation to, like he doesn't get any kickbacks or, or anything. Now there is some, some interesting work that says if we, we have a, what's called, I think it's vicarious goal fulfillment. Like I give you a recommendation for uh, reading a book. I say, hey, uh, you know, PJ, you should read this, this book. Yeah. And then if you actually go and read the book, then it feels good to me to, to have actually like yes. facilitated, you know, your, your accomplishment of that. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, right. The review, these people are doing it. Although, you know, now you look at Yelp and some of these other platforms where there is maybe a little bit of an incentive for people to provide reviews. You become like an expert reviewer. And I, I think they have like gold star reviewers and, and those kinds of things. Hmm. So yeah, there's some interesting dynamics there in uh, in reviews that are fascinating, and people have talked a lot about really interesting stuff in reviews, like the effects, like the proximity of when the review was written. So if you see a review for a restaurant that was written two days ago, more influential than you see the re a similar review that was written two months ago. Well, I mean that probably makes some sense. Okay, yeah. so this is more current and therefore maybe more credible. Uh, there's a, some cool research about the differences that result in reviews from people who write them on their mobile device. So presumably in the moment, yeah. like I am now currently at the restaurant uh, versus somebody who had their meal and then went home and wrote it on a, on a laptop or a, a desktop. So that's fascinating. They talk about the, the language that people use right. and the vividness of the uh, of the review, just really, really interesting um, work going on in, in all kinds of areas here. Yeah, I, I, that that sends my brain all sorts of different directions, but I, I do have a couple other questions for you. Um, what are some uh, of the practical problems facing us as a society when it comes to data privacy? And what do you see as maybe some better possible solutions? Yeah, so I, I think it's it's a matter of trade-offs. Um, my co-author Leslie uh, Leslie John has has some studies um, where where she talks about what, one of the things that we were talking about earlier about you know, consumers' willingness to disclose a lot of sensitive information. Um, I, I find fascinating because they don't consumers generally consumers. And I forget this because I'm kind of entrenched in the, the world, but just the general everyday consumer doesn't quite understand the value of their information. Yeah. Right. Even things like location information or past purchase history or past search behavior, those things are incredibly, incredibly valuable to firms. Because even if I can incrementally go, essentially what firms are looking at is you're a probability. You're, you know, what's the likelihood that you are going to buy this widget. And if I can increase that probability, even incrementally, like maybe I take you from a 50% to a 60% likelihood, that can be incredibly lucrative, yes. right? financially valuable to-, to Especially buy. at scale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of transactions uh, you know, online. And so, Knowing that information is incredibly valuable to firms, it means that they are, their, their costs are lower, right? They, they have fewer misses, I guess, mm -hmm. is, uh, is sort of the result. 
And so what, what I find fascinating is that consumers don't necessarily realize that that information about them is so valuable. And so they give it up relatively freely. Um, and so I, was, I mentioned my co-author, Leslie, um, she had some interesting studies about people, and I, I, I'm gonna butcher the, the studies, but willing to give up pretty sensitive information for relatively minor kind of gifts, mm. like maybe even a cookie. Like, like would you take a cookie for your social security number and your driver's license? Or just, oh, no. I mean, these are things that really, <laughs> I mean, it, and it's surprising that that consider and so I, I think the thing that is happening, the trend is happening is that people are consumers are starting to get more aware of you know the value of their information. Mm. Um, and and a lot more firms are realizing that that people should have control of of what information that they share, uh, when they share it, whether or not they can retract that information. Um, and, and so you know a lot of really good firms uh, who are aware of these kinds of things are making sure that consumers have autonomy over their information and when that information gets shared. And um, I don't think we're at a point yet where the firms are, there's this massive asymmetry of, of information where firms know about the value of this information, but consumers don't. So we aren't quite to a point where it's equitable, like you know, firms are giving up things. So you could argue that a firm because they have all this great and rich information about you, that they're producing better products and services. So now I can produce this really customized thing that's just for you, that really targets your, your wants and needs, but it's not quite equitable uh, by a long shot, I think. And I think it's certainly moving in that direction. And as consumers become more aware of you know, the value of their information, um, they will uh, start to demand that, start to demand uh, you know, more for their, in that exchange, mm -hmm. right? I'm giving you valuable data. You need to give me something uh, of value in return. Yeah, I think it was. So that's that's one thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was like five or six years ago that the value of data, private uh, of private data exceeded the value of oil, mm. um, which is not surprising yeah. when you look at, you know, top companies like Amazon, Google, you know, um, yeah. uh, and I mean, that all comes from very targeted advertising. And, you know, it is interesting because people will complain about that. And then at the same time, they'll be like, man, I love these recommendations from YouTube or I love these recommendations on Amazon for like yeah. these things I want to buy. You know, my YouTube algorithm, uh, I sometimes uh, switch accounts for different reasons. And then I'll be like, what is this? You know, I'm like scrolling through the feed and it's like, <laughs> it's not used to me. And yeah. I see all this stuff. And then you forget how much you've given out there just by what I watch. And um, even through creating this podcast, recognizing how much information I get about my viewers uh, is really, yeah. really astonishing. Um, I did. The other thing I'll say about yes. that is, is that there is, so uh, uh, this sounds like I'm going to be defending firms and I don't want to sound that way, um, but there is some value in them using that information to generate things. So right. you mentioned your YouTube uh, playlist. You know, what else, you, you, you would be spending maybe, I don't know, maybe it's trivial, but some amount of time and some amount of effort of finding the next interesting video to watch. And so by you know, using your data and the algorithm and the, the predictive software, they can 
suggest some things that they think you will find interesting or useful or, you know, in Amazon's case, products that you will find that other people have found useful that, that purchased similar kinds of products. And so that is valuable to consumers. You know, it, it's certainly not, it, it's not costless for you to go and search for, you know, a variety of, of products. And so, yeah, in, in some ways it's, it's valuable. Well, it's interesting too. I just realized that I actually get information back because there are, there are things I wouldn't have realized or known about unless they were actually in, in a, some small way sharing other people's information with me. That's right. Because I like, I thought you were going to go, go ahead. down the, uh, I thought you were going to go down the road of you get information back about your own identity. Uh, that and too. That's yes, too. that's also true. <laughs> right. Yeah. A, a colleague of mine here at Ohio State has done some work on that. You know, you, you learn about yourself based on the recommendations that are given to you. You're like, oh gosh, I am, you know, kind of a, a crazy, dark humored kind of, kind of person, <laughs> like, because I'm getting all these, you know, horror movie recommendations or, or whatever, right? You learn a little bit about yourself. There's that infamous uh, target study about um, how they were able yeah. to like, <laughs> I still that the predicting of yeah, pregnancy, the pregnancy yeah. where like the dad came in was like, at, like yelling at the, the store and then like apologized a week later. He found out like, that's how he found out his daughter was pregnant was through advertising yeah. from target. Right, yeah, they sent her. They sent her some neonatal uh, coupons for vitamins yes. and and things like that. They they knew before he did, which was you know amazing. Yes, <laughs> yes. Also a little scary, right? And that's where like there's right. that back and forth of like, oh, you know, um, it's uh, just by what you buy and when you put that together. Because I think it's like people look at you give a lot of away a lot of information about yourself, but when you when everyone's giving away a lot of information about themselves, the aggregate of that information is astonishingly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're right, in some ways, if, if you are the only person that really, really characterizes you, Yeah. but if you're part of a bigger group, then you can kind of blend in, camouflage yourself a little bit. <laughs> That's true too. Uh, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I did want, you know, I, I have found that good questions often come from things that, uh, people uh, get frustrated with. So uh, you mentioned that you sometimes get frustrated uh, talking to your students about marketing is more than advertising. So oh, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about why ad marketing is more than advertising. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, maybe I could, I, I could characterize it in this way. So I have a, a textbook that I usually teach from. I think it's on the order of maybe 26, 27 chapters, maybe 30 chapters. Um, I think there are two devoted to specifically um, advertising. Wow. So, and, and the, the intuition is that, you know, because it's what we see, right? Mm. We all see advertising. We see ads in the subway. We see ads on TV and uh, on the internet, banner ads, all kinds of things. That's, that's what we see. It's accessible. Um, but what we don't really see is all of the steps that kind of lead up to the production of that advertisement. And so that is the way that marketers would, that's, that's what we would classify as marketing. Like mm. all of the pre-work, like what most people see is, oh, there, this is a really terrible ad. I don't find this funny. Or this is a really great ad. Like it moved me. And, and, and so people are like, oh, advertising is marketing. That's so great. But there are probably hours and hours and hours of work that led up to the production of that advertisement. And that is what we would classify as, as marketing. So there's, you know, the, the classic 
segmentation, targeting, and positioning, you know, dividing the market up into homogenous groups of people and saying, okay, these people, the soccer moms, are really likely to behave similarly um, and, and different from, you know, the goth people, yeah, right? Yeah. So, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a, a, a goth soccer ball that they would both equally <laughs> like. <laughs> I don't know what that would look like, but, but yeah, right? So you've got groups of people. And so that's, that's all marketing, right? It's, it's about understanding consumers and picking the right consumers, saying we as a firm are really good at producing you know, eco-friendly products. And so maybe we shouldn't engage in relationships with people who don't, they go out and want to club baby seals, and things, <laughs> right? Those aren't, those aren't people that we <laughs> mesh with, right? Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> yes. I, I use, yeah, but all that, that's all marketing, right? right? That, that's all uh, understanding of our consumers and, and the marketplace and, uh, and positioning ourselves. Yeah. Is that, so this is a stab in the dark. Do you ever run into uh, students who have over romanticized marketing because of like Mad Men, kind of like they want to be the next Don Draper type of thing? Is that part of what's uh, we're discussing here? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think some of my my favorite favorite. I say that in I should say air, in air quotes. My favorite moments um, with students is. Um, when we actually get into advertising or we do something that's relatively creative um, and then they, they come and say, this is really great that we finally got to do marketing. And, and it typically is, you know, in, if we're in a 16 week semester, yes. it's week 15 yes. when we, when we start talking about it. And I'm thinking, where, where have you been for the last 14 weeks? We've been, we've been doing marketing. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, oddly enough, I have never seen Mad Men. Um, I, it of course gets recommended to me oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot, but I'm sure I would love it. I'm sure it's, you know, fascinating in the world of advertising. It is, I, and I don't mean to denigrate right, advertising. Right, right. It's a great, great industry. And those people are amazingly creative. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, obviously advertising, you know, as we b began our conversation was the thing that kind of drew me into, um, the world of, of marketing, but, um, yeah, um, uh, it's certainly not everything. Mm. And so you've got, you know, people who are interested in, in marketing. I mean, I often tell my students things like, it doesn't matter. So sometimes they'll be afraid of either statistics or analytics or, you know, some of these other more technical skills. Like that, you, there's still a place for you in marketing. Yeah. You know, if you can talk to people, I mean, marketing is about starting relationships and building those relationships. If you're good at that, you're good at marketing. Mm. Is there uh is there a divide or maybe a perceived divide between ethical and uh effective marketing? Mm. Um so I would say that there's um maybe a perceived divide. Um there has been a a, a host of research in the last 10 years that talks about um, doing the, the phrase that they use is doing good as opposed to doing well. Mm. So doing good, meaning like, you know, pro-social kinds of activity as a, as a firm, maybe you've got corporate social responsibility initiatives. We're doing, uh, green initiatives, uh, recycling, you know, good, good for the planet. Look at the triple, triple bottom line versus doing well, which typically means financially. 
you know, right. you're you're healthy as a as an organization, and you're going to financially make it. And so that used to be the perception that you couldn't have both of those; that they were mutually exclusive. That if you if you really wanted to do well financially, yeah. you had to you had to screw over somebody, yeah. right? Maybe it was the earth, or maybe it was your consumers. Um, but now there's there's quite a bit of evidence that suggests that actually, and maybe it's because of a, a you know society has sort of shifted that that consumers really want and respect firms that um, that are you know, pro social that engage in environmentally healthy behaviors um, you know things like uh, fair trade if you think about like the coffee um, sure. industry you know paying people what they're worth all all of those things are are really seen as consumers. And certainly we've talked about, you know, segments, the soccer moms and the goths. There are certain segments of consumers that will seek out firms that are intentionally doing good things, mm. right? So, and, and I think those segments are getting are getting bigger. As we see the importance of, you know, people's politics and, and other things, their, their values shape the way that they buy. And I, I think people can think about their, their voice Using using their wallets as as their voice. Oh, so. Uh, so forgive me. I don't. What's the triple bottom line? Oh gosh, now you put me. Oh, on the spot. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> it is. Um, I think it's corporate corporate. The shareholders is is one yeah. bottom line. So that's the sort of the financial, yeah. and I think it's society is is another. So we are, we should be beholding, uh, beholden to. Shareholders, which is pretty typical, sure. um, society, and then I think um, maybe maybe it's the environment. I, yeah. I think it might be the third one. But essentially, yeah, we need to be thinking about as a firm. We need to be thinking about our impact beyond just making money. Yes, right? gotcha. We we have to. Sorry for putting you on the spot. Else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, we can we can edit it. I can I can go in and actually look, and then you can edit it in and. Oh man, this guy knows everything. No, that, that is, I, I'd put you on the spot there. Actually, I have to know now. The uh, social and environmental and profits. You were right on. See, you did, you oh, do know right. everything. The terrific. Um, terrific. No, that's, uh, I, and I think everyone understands whether it was social or environmental or, you know, a couple other things like that. The, the main idea um that companies can look beyond and I, I think that's really important so i'm definitely gonna steal that concept uh so thank you um yeah so uh kind of as as we close out here for our listeners if you could leave them with one thing about their power as a consumer and how they should you know what they should take away from your studies um with data privacy what would you leave them with Mm, that's a good a good question. So uh, I would say, um, first, their power as a consumer and and their control over their data. One, it, it's getting better. So you know, th there's good news on the on the horizon that that firms are starting to realize um, that they need to give over more control uh, to consumers, whether that is you know mandated through legislation and regulation. Um, or simply that they are, you know, trying to influence consumers' desire to uh, contract with them. Um, so that's that's the good news. The, other, the the thing I would say is that consumers 
you know, the answer is almost always that you should educate yourselves. But I get it that it's hard. It's hard to you know, be uh, informed of everything. Right. Um, and so to make yourself, there's a there's a strong push, and it's been a strong push in, in our uh, academic world for probably the last 15, 20 years um, about making sure that the research that we do is helping not just firms, but consumers to be better consumers. Mm. And so oftentimes it's, it's just merely awareness of, you know, what's going on, um, you know, your own psychology about like how you uh, interpret information, whether that's, you know, reviews online or, you know, the privacy that, that is you know, presented to your privacy notices that are presented to you. So being aware of your own kind of reactions is a really important thing as a, as a consumer. Uh, and the more you are, the more you'll notice the way that you, uh, you behave in certain situations and contexts and, and things. And so one of the good things that you can do is sort of build up your own history, like a, you know, like a mental diary of, oh, you know, the last time I was in this situation, I did something that was maybe suboptimal mm -hmm. or you know, didn't work out to my to my advantage. And so maybe I'll try something different or maybe I'll um, you know, remember that. And then the next time I, I can maybe make a better choice uh, around something. Mm. But I, I do think, you know, a lot of a lot of what we do as consumer psychologists is with the intent of making consumers better choice makers, make better decision makers. Um, because, you know, these have some pretty major consequences, yeah. either financial consequences or you know, the, the amount of information that you're giving over to people that you maybe didn't want uh, to give over. So, yeah, I, and I think part of that is is being more educated as a, as a that's easy for me to say because that's yeah, my right, job. Right. Um, but but um, but, yeah, there are a few things that that um, you can do and understand as as a consumer that about the way that you make choices that are, um, that are important. Yeah. So like starting with not trading your social security for a cookie, you know, something like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, or, or yeah, just small things. I mean, those, those matter. I mean, the, the difference between like the value of your information and what people are giving over to you is, mm. is very, very different. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure sure. and, uh, Thank you uh, for coming on. Is there anything that yeah, you'd like to absolutely. plug here at the end? Um, I I have no, no things to plug. <laughs> I am I am pluglet. I should should know better, right? As a, as a marketing <laughs> professor. Well, we'll definitely put a link to the study if people want to know more. Please, um, yeah, take a take a look. It's in it's in uh, coming forthcoming in the Journal of Marketing Research, um, and it's uh, yep. Check out. Uh, all of my co-authors' research, all of, uh, you know, my my research. If you're interested in privacy, um, identity formation, those mm. kinds of things. Um, yeah, we're we're a great team of of people that are fascinated by this stuff. Yeah. We like talking about it. Yeah, well, and I, it, your passion definitely comes through. So, thank you again for coming on. Sure, absolutely. Thanks very much. <laughs>